Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. My guest today is Professor of Philosophy Mike Humer. Mike's a returning guest to the show and the author of several books, including The Problem of Political Authority, which everyone should read. He's also got Knowledge, Reality, and Value, which we discussed on Episode 8, so go check that out. Justice Before the Law, which we talked about on Episode 13, is Political Authority and Illusion, Episode 22, and the book we're discussing today, Understanding Knowledge. It's great to have you back, Mike. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. This is an epistemology book. What is epistemology and why is it the king of all fields? Um, People call it the theory of knowledge, right? So it's the branch of philosophy that addresses philosophical questions about knowledge, like what is knowledge and how do we know the things that we know or do we know the things we think we know and that sort of thing. And um, it is considered one of the three main branches of philosophy. So, you know, in in the book, one of the things I say is you can ask an epistemological question about um, any assertion, you know, any claim that a person makes in any area, there's a reasonable question, how do you know it? And um, anything that a person says is something that they're implying that they know by saying that thing. This is shown by the fact that you can't say, you know, for example, it's raining, but I don't know if it's raining. Right? Like that sounds bizarre. It sounds contradictory. It's not formally contradictory because there's a possible world in which it's raining and I don't know that it's raining. Right, but I can't assert that. And that suggests that by making an assertion, by asserting that it's raining, I'm implying that I know that it's raining. It's a contradiction okay. about your state of knowledge if it's implicit that you're also saying, I know that it's raining, right? Like what I actually said is not contradictory. It's that I implied something that contradicts something that I said. Yes. So I implied that I know just by saying that it's raining. And then I said that I didn't know. So, right. So that's the contradiction. But anyway, okay. And so, you know, all, all statements are implicit knowledge claims. And so it would be uh, it would be interesting to understand the nature of knowledge. And it turned out that there are a lot of confusions about the nature of knowledge, right, which is shown by the existence of, you know, a lot of kind of skeptical puzzles, puzzles in epistemology, especially skeptical puzzles, right, in which uh, it looks like there's a persuasive argument that you don't know things that everybody assumes that you know. And you know, most people are not really able to say what's wrong with the arguments, and they find the premises of the arguments plausible. And what that shows is that we're confused about knowledge, which is a really big thing to be confused about, because you're constantly laying claim to knowledge every time you open your mouth. And are when you say it's the king of all fields, just talking about philosophy in particular, is it more foundational or fundamental in your view than like metaphysics? I mean, I'm not sure about that. But you know, like the same the same point applies to metaphysics. If somebody makes a metaphysical claim, there's a question of how you know that. And you know, a question of like, well, what justifies that claim, as with anything else. Now, people in metaphysics would say, oh, yeah, but you know, metaphysics studies what exists, and the nature of what exists. And that includes people and minds. And you know, knowledge is just one possible state of a mind. So of course, my view is not that you have to study epistemology in order to know anything else. 
However, my view is that being confused about epistemology can interfere with your knowledge of everything else. Like if you're if you have confused epistemological views, then that can mess up your metaphysics and your ethics, right? Do you have that view also about other uh, like non-philosophical fields? Like how does how does epistemology interact with science and pedagogy and like our actual practical acquisition of knowledge in the day-to-day world or how, how are those things related and do our views about epistemology tend to really practically influence yeah. and interrupt those other things? Like if you're not confused, then you don't really need to study epistemology in order to do other things. But the, the fact is that a lot of people are confused. So it's sort of like, well, epistemology is mainly harmful. <laughs> is, having incorrect epistemological views interferes with other things rather than, you know, epistemology actually helping you. So anyway, the main way that I as an epistemologist help people is by defeating other epistemologists. So, okay. So how does it affect um, science? I mean, so like a great example is um, look up Albert Einstein's book, Relativity, in which he explains, you know, special relativity kind of briefly, like it's a short book, right? But at the beginning of the book, he starts off with like, you know, preparing the reader with some epistemology. Right. It starts telling you about how you know, like a concept has no meaning unless you have a way of testing, like observationally determining whether it applies in a particular circumstance. Right. Otherwise, it's meaningless. OK, this is an idea from the logical positivists. And then he totally uses that idea to support the theory of relativity. Right. So there's like there's arguments for special relativity where like the key premise is a philosophical premise. And by the way, he doesn't seem to realize that this is a controversial assumption when he says this. Was it controversial then? Because you talk in the book, and and I was aware of this, that logical positivism was like a big, I don't know, fad in like science and philosophy for a long time. Was it even controversial when he wrote it? You know, I don't know. Like, I think think it was widely accepted among scientists and I guess philosophers also at the time, but, you know, for no good reason. There's just the idea that you can't understand the meaning of something if you don't know how to test whether it applies. Like That's like one one feature of logical positivism. Can you just give like a brief overview of, of what the view is? So logical positivism has two subparts, um, the verification criterion of meaning or verificationism and empiricism. Right. So verificationism holds that the meaning of a statement is determined by the conditions for verifying it, right, or you know, more precisely for having evidence either for or against it. So if there's no way of having evidence for or against a statement, then the statement is meaningless. All right, so so they say. And then empiricism is the view that they, uh, there's no synthetic a priori knowledge. And so um, the result of this is, according to the positivists, the only kind of meaningful statements are statements that are analytically true, like they're true by definition, or they're analytically false, like they're contradictory, or they're empirically testable, like they could be tested by observation, right? So like, uh, for example, moral statements count as being meaningless, according to the positivists, because there's no observational test of whether something is morally right or wrong, right? And it's also not, you know, tautological or contradictory. And this was the popular view among scientists and maybe philosophers during roughly what period? Uh, you know, like early to mid 20th century. So basically, I think um, the philosophers gave up positivism in the late 20th century, and it's now very unpopular. But I don't think that the scientists ever got the memo. So I think <laughs> there's still positivists among scientists today, or, you know, just sort of like vaguely positivistic ideas, right? 
Like they might not exactly hold the philosophy, but they just make remarks that sound like things that a positivist would say. So when when they say that statements are meaningless if they can't be verified, it's not that the statements are incorrect or that they're unimportant, but that it's yeah. like literally just speaking gibberish. And, <laughs> yeah. And our, and our yeah. psychology tricks us into thinking we've understood meaning when we haven't. Right. Yeah. So like by meaningless, they don't mean it's pointless, right? which, you know, maybe is one sense. What they mean is you literally didn't assert anything, right? If I say, you know, murder's wrong, according to the positivist, like I did not assert any proposition that's not either true or false. And, you know, like what A.J. Ayer said was, well, you're expressing your emotions. So it's meaningless in the sense that it is not attempting to describe a fact or a state of affairs in the world. You know, you might just be expressing your feelings or something like that. At most, it's expressing your good or bad feelings over the concept of murder or something. It's like saying murder, yuck. Yeah. Well, let's back up a little bit. So this is intended to be an entertaining and engaging textbook, right? Yeah. For classes or or just for, for self-learning. I mean, I'm not in a class, yeah. but I was I was quite enjoying it. So if you're a teacher, buy this book, throw out your other books. You see, you lay out like four structures that reasons for our knowledge can have. Can you describe what those are and say, are those the only four potential options and why we should think that these are the main options are are the main ways we can describe the reasons for our knowledge? I mean, you know, nobody's thought of any other possibilities, right? So, um, okay, so you have a belief and then somebody could ask you why you believe it. And let's say you could give a reason for it. And then they could ask you why you believe that reason. And then maybe you could give a reason for that. And then they could ask you for a reason for their reason. And so, you know, what if there's some really annoying person who, no matter what reason you give, they ask you for reason for that? Okay, what then? Like a child? Yeah, that's right. Like your little brother, you know, if you have annoying little kids. Yeah, okay. So it looks like there's the following possibilities, I guess, following just formal possibilities. Like maybe you can just go on forever. Like you just have new reasons to give. Every time they ask you for a reason, you have a reason and then you have a reason for that and it just goes on forever. Okay, that's the infinite regress possibility. And then the second possibility is, well, maybe you go in a circle. So at some point when the kid asks you for a reason, you give a reason that you said previously in the series. And then after that, it's very easy because then you just repeat all of the other things that you said after that in the series and just go around the circle. Okay. So the circularity possibility. Uh, And then uh, the third possibility is um, you come to a reason that you don't need any further reasons for. This is the so-called foundationalist possibility. There's a foundation for your knowledge, which doesn't require further reasons to justify it. And then the last possibility is actually you don't have any reasons for anything, right? And so it looks like those are the only possibilities, right? So, you know, like reasons could be either linear or non-linear, linear or circular, I guess. And if it's linear, then it could be either finite or infinite. And if it's infinite, so you have the infinitist view. And if you have the circularity, then you have the coherentist view. If, if you have a finite linear structure, then you have the foundationalist view. Or if you have no reasons at all, then you have this the skeptic view. Is coherentism only a view for circularity? Or does coherentism kind of like, can it get plugged into any of these views? except for maybe skepticism. Traditionally, people sort of like treat coherentism as if it was embracing the circularity option, right? So the coherentists think that beliefs are justified because you have like a 
set of mutually supporting beliefs that are all, all fitting together. There are some people who say, you know, like coherentism could be viewed as a weird form of foundationalism. It's a weird form in which the entire belief system is foundational. But the property it has to have in order to be foundational is it has to contain a bunch of beliefs that are all mutually supporting or something like that. Is that what what did you call it? Some weird portmanteau foundationalism? Is that what that view is? Oh, no. So frontierism is um, it's the idea that, well, beliefs have some foundational justification, but only a little bit. And you need coherence. You know, you have a bunch of beliefs with a little bit of foundational justification. And then if they're mutually supporting, then the coherence increases the justification so that they can become overall justified beliefs. That's what I was thinking about. Something about that seemed seemed intuitive to me, or especially if the foundational beliefs are themselves independent from each other, like if there are multiple independent foundational beliefs, and then those tend to have downstream beliefs that cohere with each other. Yeah. And so foundherentism is really a form of foundationalism. (laughs) Okay. So I don't know, you know, we don't, I don't care that much about arguing about terminology, but as, as far as, I don't know, like the views of actual foundationalists, no foundationalist has a problem with coherence providing um, additional justification. The argument is never over whether coherence provides justification. The argument is always over whether there are any foundations at all. So if you agree that there is some foundational justification, then you're a foundationalist. So what distinguishes in a foundationalist view, which I know is your view, what distinguishes foundational beliefs from non-foundational beliefs? And and how do you determine which is which? Or what's an account of why something could be a foundational belief that wouldn't require a reason? Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, so like my... My account is, well, if something seems to you to be true, then you have some foundational justification for it, as long as you don't have any reasons for doubting it. Uh, so and, something could be like provisionally foundational and then lose that status if you find a reason for doubting it? Yeah. So like, it's not a dogmatic view, right? So, you know, the foundations are not infallible, right? They're not like unquestionable or whatever. It's that we start from what appears to be the case. Start from the assumption that everything is the way that it appears until you have reasons for thinking otherwise. So then if, if in fact you acquire reasons for doubting the appearances, which themselves would have to come from other appearances. Like the only way that you have reasons for doubting your appearances is that there's some like kind of tension or conflict in the appearances, okay? But then if that happens and you can give up your initial belief. So you have some initial belief. And in this case, at the very beginning, your initial beliefs are, are what are some examples of this? Just like sensory impressions, is that like yeah. the main version of this? Yeah, like, um, you know, oh, looks like there's a hand here. <laughs> um, so there's probably a hand, unless I have reason for thinking otherwise. I'm going to start with that. But, you know, but there are many examples like um, the shortest path between two points is a straight line. When I think about that, that seems obvious. So I'm just going to go with that unless I have reason to think otherwise, right? Which I don't. You know, like it seems like uh, torturing babies for fun is wrong. Just seems wrong. So I should assume that it's wrong unless I have particular reasons for doubting that. Is there any kind of distinction to be made between the impressions that you have from these appearances, like right now as a person who's lived a life and had a lot of other experiences? For like Some of these examples don't seem foundational because they seem to depend on so many other things that you've come to learn about, like what is a hand or what's the nature yeah. of suffering or something like that. So you know, what are what are like the first foundational beliefs that, that I guess maybe this is just like a question about human psychology or perception? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, that example where you see the hand, 
you know, that's like a little bit more complex than I represented it, right? Because, okay, in order in order for this to seem like a hand to me, I have to have past experiences with hands. There are some things that could seem to you without your having past experiences, you know, which I assume are things like there's a specific shade of color, you know, there's a specific distribution of colors in my visual field. I assume that you start with something like that. That was my my first thought. Yes, Th- things like that, or or I don't know, even maybe some of the some of the like abstract, like the straight line concept is probably one that would appear at some point after you've developed some kind of language. Um, what are so? What are the main objections to foundationalism then? I mean, the most common thing that you hear people say is, "Oh, the foundations are arbitrary." And so it just seems like people think that saying the word arbitrary, like that's the core of the objection. If you just call it arbitrary, that shows what's wrong with it. What does arbitrary mean in this context? Does it mean random? Um, Yeah, good question. I don't know. I don't know what the hell these people mean. So, right. So like, here's an interpretation by arbitrary, you mean unjustified. Well, okay. So then you're basically just asserting the negation of foundationalism. So that's you're just saying circular. You're just saying that the things the foundationalists are saying are justified or unjustified. Well, okay, but then why are you saying that? Why why do you think they're unjustified? You have to say more, right? Or the other the other thing, if you ask people, you know, what does arbitrary mean? Sometimes they'll say, well, arbitrary means it's not supported by reasons. Okay, so your objection to foundationalism is the putatively foundational beliefs are not supported by reasons. Well, that's kind of like the definition of foundational beliefs. So I don't see how this is an objection. <laughs> they're not supported by reason. Yeah, we know. That's what we said. <laughs> okay. And then they're like, well, they're not supported by reason, so they're not justified. Okay, so you're just asserting the negation of foundationalism. <laughs> and then, you know, it's like really hard to get somebody to give a reason for rejecting foundationalism, right? And, you know, like on their own view, they can't just say, oh, well, that's foundational, right? They can you know, like what's, What's wrong with having beliefs that are not supported by reasons? And they can't just say that's obvious because their own view is that you're not allowed to believe things just because they're obvious, right? You have to have reasons. Would it be helpful to say something about what is an alternative to reasons that could cause someone to believe something? I mean, is this just the distinction between reasons and causes? Yeah, your foundational beliefs are not without cause. They're beliefs that are justified in some way that doesn't depend on reasons. Then you're like, okay, so what are reasons? Well, like the way that I'm using it, reasons are other beliefs that support the belief in question, right? So like a belief can be justified in some way other than because it's supported by another belief, right? And then in my view as well, it's supported by a different thing called an appearance, right? Appearance is not a belief. It's another kind of mental state, but also a representational mental state. And you could see that appearances are not beliefs because, you know, it's possible for something to appear to you to be the case that you don't believe, right? It's also possible for people to believe things that don't appear to be the case, okay? Right, so, you know, like you have, you have like, uh, you could take a leap of faith and, and then believe something that doesn't seem to be the case. Something about foundationalism, as I was reading it, I, I misread part of the chapter and I thought you had completely written off foundationalism as even a sensible option in the very first page but I realized you were writing off like a very specific interpretation of foundationalism. So I was like, oh, okay. So I'm, I'm supposed to think that that's a crazy idea altogether. But no, because that was oh, my okay. that was my first thought. Was no, foundationalism I'm, I'm ever used as a argument for the existence of God? There seems to be some kind of analogy between the idea of foundations and the idea of like the unmoved mover argument for God. And I can imagine oh. older mm-hmm. philosophers 
treating God full stop as the the foundational beliefs that you don't need any justification for because I don't know, they're self-evident. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like there's two two connections there. Yeah. So the first thing was there's like an argument for the first cause, which is analogous to the infinite regress argument. Right. So like the main, uh, I don't know, the most famous argument for believing in foundations is the infinite regress argument. It's that we know some things and like you can't you can't complete an infinite series. So it has to be that we started somewhere. And like and the starting point has to be justified, otherwise everything else after it is justified. So it just must be that there are justified starting points. Okay. And then there's an there are other infinite regress arguments in philosophy that are kind of analogous to that, where you say, oh, like it's just unacceptable to have an infinite regress. So there has to be like a starting point. And so the first cause argument is an example of that, where people say, well, there just can't be an infinite series of causes stretching back in time forever. So it has to be that there was a first cause. Now, the first cause argument, I think, is much weaker than the argument for foundationalism, right? The reason is that it's totally reasonable, or anyway, I view it as reasonable to think maybe there really was an infinite series of causes. It's not obvious that the universe can't just go back forever. But I take it that it is obvious that our beliefs don't go back forever. Like I, I do not have an infinite number of beliefs. Like, I know that. <laughs> But I don't know that the universe doesn't have an infinite history. So then the other connection that you drew was like, well, some people say, you know, maybe religion is just foundational. Like this is Plantinga's view. I think he thinks that Christianity is foundational, not even just theism, just like the whole Christianity. Just like some Um, very specific variant of Christianity. Yeah, maybe that too. Yeah. I don't know, like that's compatible with foundationalism. Like, you know, just being a foundationalist doesn't tell you what the foundations are. So it could be that your religion is foundational, although I don't find that plausible, right? Like, I don't think that that's um, a plausible version of foundationalism. What's more plausible about foundationalism, the way you describe it to me, is that the foundational beliefs tend to become simpler, not more complex. And positing the existence of God or religious truths always seemed to me to be just getting more and more complex, not more and more simple and basic. I mean, actually, a lot of um, theists like my view, like they like phenomenal conservatism because, you know, they say, well, like religion just seems right to me. It seems to me like there's obviously God. So I'm justified in believing that. You know, there's the argument from religious experience. There are people who have experiences in which they seem to be in the presence of God. I don't know what this is like because I haven't had this experience, but I don't think they're lying. I believe they do have an experience that is somehow correctly described as I seem to be in the presence of God. So then they have prima facie justification for believing that there's a God. And so I agree with that. But I also do think that there are defeaters, which is there are religious experiences in all different religions. So like people who belong to different religions have religious experiences, which they claim support their religion and the different religions conflict with each other. And so then I think that suggests that religious experience is not reliable. And there are experiences that are very analogous to religious experiences, but that people interpret differently. You can have an experience that I know people and I imagine if I were to have experiences like that, I would interpret them differently. I would say like, yeah, I felt an extreme amount of awe. Everything felt very significant. In my misspent youth, I might have done mushrooms a couple times, and I recall having the feeling that everything felt very beautiful and important and significant. And that felt religious, but I didn't interpret it in any kind of doctrinally religious way. And I imagine that if you had that framework going into it, or if that framework felt very salient to you, that would be a natural way to interpret it. 
No, that's right. I mean, the experiences that people have appear to be tied to what religion they've been exposed to. Like if you were exposed to Christianity, then you could have Christian themed religious experiences. And if you weren't, you're not going to. That's insane. And, so, and you know, like uh, Plantiga talks about things like when he reads the Bible, he just has the feeling that God is talking to him. And um, like, I'm highly confident that that's an effect produced by his already being a Christian. If you were not previously exposed to Christianity, nobody told you that this thing was written by God. And then you just like picked up this book and started reading it. I don't think that you would have a feeling that God was talking to you. It would be a lot more believable if he, without knowing the name, described like Vishnu or something and said, I have I have this very strong feeling that this particular kind of deity is talking to me and I don't know why. Yeah. And then years later, you discover, wow, this is a popular religion somewhere else. Yeah. Like, see, you could just you could imagine things that would be super compelling evidence for a religion, right? Like if multiple people around the world independently in different cultures and they weren't exposed to each other, um, they had experiences of a divine being, and then they describe specific, not super vague, but specific characteristics of the being. Like it had an elephant head and like it had multiple arms or whatever. And it said his name was Ganesha or something. Then that would be like super compelling evidence that some there's some supernatural thing going on. Hey, everyone, this is Chris Kaufman. Just want to take a quick break to tell you all I appreciate you so much for listening to the show. And it's still a new show, still a growing show. And if you want to help me out, I would greatly appreciate it. Simplest thing you could do is recommend it to a friend and give it a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Their algorithms rank the shows higher, make it more visible, make it more searchable if it has more star ratings, more reviews. So anything like that would be very, very helpful. Thank you so much. I appreciate you all. Back to the show. Uh, what's the problem of induction? and? What are some ways it might be resolved? Uh, yeah, that, that that's a very good, you know, puzzling problem, right? So, I mean, some so inductive reasoning is generalizing on the basis of particular cases. So you see, like, you see some black ravens, and then you come to the conclusion that all ravens are black, or you come to the conclusion that at least the next raven you see is probably going to be black, right? So that's inductive reasoning. And then there's just a question of why we should draw such conclusions. So you know, as David Hume had it, like, why should you assume that the course of nature is uniform? Why should you assume that the unobserved things are going to be similar to the observed things? And it looks like there's some, you're making some kind of presupposition that unobserved things are probably similar to observed things. And then you get to conclude that the next thing you observe is going to be like the ones you previously observed. Okay. But what's the justification for that assumption? And then it just, it's like, it's hard to say, right? It's like, okay, so unobserved things are similar to observed things. You might say, okay, so is that a priori? doesn't seem like it's a priori because it's not a necessary truth. You, you say what easily... a priori means for the audience? Oh, yes. Yeah. So, like um, a priori truths are things that could be known without relying on observation, like justified in some way that doesn't depend on observation, like, you know, like two plus two equals four. So, you know, the typical examples are things that when you think about it just obviously has to be true. They're like logical or mathematical truths. Yeah, those are the good examples. But also, you know, people, some people say, like I say, like it's wrong to torture babies for fun. It's, a, it's an necessary truth. It's like, I can't imagine the possible world in which that's instead morally right. Okay, so like unobserved things tend to be similar to observed things. They call this the uniformity principle. So while you can imagine that not being the case, there are possible worlds in which there are unobserved things and they're radically different from the observed things. 
And then the next thing is, well, I don't know, do we know on the basis of observation that the unobserved things are similar to the observed things? No, we don't. Because by definition, we haven't observed the unobserved things. We could not possibly have observed that they're similar to the observed things. Okay, and then the remaining possibility seems to be we could know it based on induction. <laughs> okay, so you could see how this argument Which could is go. circular. Yeah, like, well, in the past, I've observed things, and then I later observed things that hitherto had been unobserved, and the hitherto unobserved things turned out to be similar to the previously observed things. So then I could draw the conclusion that in general, unobserved things tend to be similar to observed things. Okay, but that is relying on induction, which is what we were trying to justify in the first place, right? Was David Hume the first person to really draw out this problem? Or is he just the most famous one that everyone talks about? I think he's the first one. Like, I, I've never heard anyone like propose that somebody else had the problem of induction previously. So yeah, it's puzzling. Okay, so this is the problem of how can we know anything just on the basis of experience or just on the basis of past yeah. experience or saying that things that we haven't yet seen are going to be similar than the things we have seen. And that seems like cool. such a natural way of reasoning. And when you call it into question, there isn't like an obvious response. So what are some of the more sophisticated or less sophisticated responses people have given? Yeah. And so... Um, by the way, like, although I represented it as being about observation, actually, you can do induction with unobserved things. So like you could just, uh, there's inductive evidence for the for Goldbach's conjecture, right? There's inductive evidence that every even number is the sum of two primes. But like nobody's checked all the even numbers and there's no general proof that's known. But every even number that we've checked turns out to be the sum of two prime numbers. So there's an inductive generalization at every, okay. So anyway, that's just illustrating that well, induction is actually quite general method, right? Like it's not only for empirical facts. Yeah. Anyway, like what do people say about this? I don't know. There are some dumb things that people say, you know, like, uh, okay, this is a dumb thing that people say, or I don't know, like sometimes undergraduates think this, oh, okay. So David Hume is just making, he's just questioning that we could be absolutely certain. So we can't be absolutely certain of our inductive conclusions. Okay. Well, why that's dumb is, well, that's just totally says, not what he's saying. Well, and nobody... He wouldn't be arguing with anyone. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that um, there may, in fact, have been pe dumb people, you know, in Hume's time and before who thought that you could be absolutely certain of inductive conclusions. Right. And so, like, yeah, they're definitely wrong. So induction does not establish certainty. There might have been people who used to think that. But today there isn't. And it's not an amazing it's not an amazing point to make. You can't be absolutely certain yeah. inductive conclusion. And anyway, okay, but that's just totally not what he's saying. What he's saying, like David Hume, the inductive skeptic, is saying there's no reason whatsoever for believing any inductive conclusion. So there's no there's no more reason for thinking that the sun is going to rise tomorrow than there is for thinking that the sun is going to turn into a, a giant hippopotamus. Right? Like just any random thing could happen and there's no reason for making any predictions. Okay. That's his claim. So you just have to understand this is a totally insane, like form of skepticism, right? A very extreme form of skepticism. Did he actually, he didn't actually hold that belief, did he? My impression oh. was that he was just kind of spelling out in the way that you do. And a lot of philosophers do about skepticism. Like here's this crazy conclusion that seems reasonably well argued, but obviously something is wrong with it. What could it be? Yeah, so, well, it's a good question what, what the heck is going on, because elsewhere he uses induction. <laughs> like, there's no problem appealing to induction in his argument about miracles, like why you shouldn't believe in miracles, because we have inductive evidence supporting that the laws of nature are never violated, whatever. And that people um, do lie often. 
lies happen more often than violations of the laws of nature. So, you know, clearly relying on induction. And so what was his point? Um, nominally, like if you read the text, like pretty, pretty literally, his point is simply that inductive conclusions are not, quote, the product of reason. And like that's his point in a lot of a lot of these passages in the treatise and the inquiry concerning human understanding. It's like he's trying to show that a whole bunch of our beliefs are not, quote, the product of reason. So people at that time were talking about there being this faculty of the human mind called reason. And there's a question about whether that faculty is producing our beliefs or something else. So it was a psychological claim rather than a normative epistemological claim. Okay. However, most epistemologists find the normative epistemological claim more interesting. So that's what we're talking about, right? Like he gave an argument that's close to, right? Even, even if this wasn't the thing that he was really saying, he gave an argument that sounded really close to, you know, the normative epistemological claim, like our inductive beliefs are unjustified. Okay. So then what are some good uh, solutions to the problem or potential solutions? Yeah. So like, you know, I'm uh, sympathetic to probabilistic approaches, Okay, so like here's here's a thing. So let's say there's a there's a kind of inference sometimes called proportional syllogism, and so I get this from David Stove. Right, so proportional syllogism is a kind of inference in which you start out by knowing the proportion of a population that has a certain property, and then you infer that some particular individual in the population will probably have that property. Okay, so like if uh, if you start out knowing that 99% of all ravens are black, somehow, I don't know how you know that, but if you start out knowing that, and then you're going to observe a randomly chosen raven, then you can infer with 99% confidence that it will be black. Okay, that's proportional syllogism, right? And so like, this is an argument that David Stove had. So if you take a large sample from a population, like a sample containing thousands of items, it is probably going to be representative because the vast majority of large samples from any population are representative. Okay, so by representative, I mean the proportion of some trait that you're interested in in the sample is close to the proportion in the total population. All right, so like if there's a whole bunch of ravens out there and you take a group of 3,000 of them and then you check the proportion in the sample, like how many of the 3,000 are black, that proportion will probably approximately match the proportion in the population. Okay, and the argument for this is a proportional syllogism, because it can be known by just by mathematics, like by combinatorial reasoning, that the majority of large samples taken from a population are representative in that sense. And so this is not an inductive claim, right? There's a mathematical proof, it's an arithmetical truth, that the majority of large samples are representative. Like a simple example is, um, you know, like you've got six marbles and three of them are black and three of them are white. And then like you take a group of two randomly chosen marbles, right? And like how many of them match the population, right? So how many groups of two taken from the six would have one black and one white, right? Because that would be the same proportion as in the total population, right? And okay, well, there's more groups with the one black and one white than there are groups that would have both black or both white. And if you had a so, larger group of marbles and a larger sample size, the tendency to converge on, on being proportionately representative would be higher and higher mathematically. That's right. Yeah. Right. So like, you know, that thing with the, you know, six and two, it's like a slight, there's a slight advantage for the 50%. But as you get larger and larger samples, there's a higher and higher proportion of possible samples that are closer and closer to matching the proportion in the total population. So if you picked out, if you randomly picked out 
10,000 humans, it'd be really weird if you got 90 women and 10 men. Yeah, 90% women. Yeah. Right. It's just like an arithmetical fact that most possible groups of 10,000 humans are going to have close to half women and half men. Right. You know, given that the total population is about half women and half men. Okay. So then this doesn't so much solve the problem of induction as kind of like skirt around it is the idea that what we call induction is really just like an, an intuitive version of this kind of probabilistic reasoning? Well, so the idea is to vindicate an inductive inference using a different kind of inference that wasn't in dispute, right? So David Hume did not intend to be disputing proportional syllogism. So, you know, like induction is where you start from particular cases and then you draw a generalization to the population. Proportional syllogism is an inference in which you start from a generalization about the population, then you make an inference about a particular case. So proportional syllogism wasn't in dispute. But now, you know, we can give an argument that if you accept proportional syllogism, then you should accept induction. So, you know, the argument is, well, okay, you should believe that most, most large samples are representative. So now if you just took a sample at random, you should believe that it's probably representative. And then when you check the proportion of some trait in the sample, then you should believe that that's probably the proportion in the general population because the sample is probably representative. And then when you get to that conclusion, like you've drawn a conclusion about the proportion in the total population, so that's induction, right? So like by going through some steps that are not inductive, then you get to the inductive conclusion. So how can you have justification for believing that you have a, like a randomly selected sample? especially like over time. So I don't know if David Hume actually uses the example of the sun coming up, but the sun rises or appears to rise in the sky every morning and, and has. So we've got a very large sample across history of the sun coming up every morning, as far as we know. So that should be representative. But how can we be confident that the sample that we're looking at was, say, randomly chosen or something, as opposed to selectively chosen to be misleading? What's our justification uh -huh. for that? I'm not clear on how it could be selectively chosen to be misleading. So. Maybe that maybe that's a bad example, but in the marble example, you know, it's it's presumed that we're choosing marbles at random, right? Yeah. So that's a good reason to think that it's representative. What reason do we have in cases where we're not deliberately selecting things at random for believing that the selection is representative? Well, I mean, you should just you should deliberately select them at random. Okay, so like this is an actual issue for surveys. Like they actually have to take steps to try to make it random, right? Yeah, but you can do that. So the thing is, like, well, no, if you haven't chosen it at random, I'm thinking more of like natural science, like like the swan example. You're going around seeing swans. Why yeah. should you believe that like the way you've gone and observed swans is random as opposed to you're going to all the places where there happen to be white swans and all the black swans are somewhere else? Well. Basically, because you selected swans from around the world. <laughs> so like you can know whether you did that. And if you only selected the swans in one area, then it actually is a reasonable hypothesis that they're different colors in different areas. So yeah, I guess so this is just like a normal a normal part of science is you, you proportion your confidence to how widely chosen the sample is or how big the sample yeah. is. So you've taken a sample and you know that almost all samples of that, you've taken a sample of a certain size, which is large, and you know that almost all large samples are represented. Well, if you don't have any reason for thinking that this sample is unusual, then you should think that it's probably representative. You know, the unrepresentative samples are a very small proportion of the total samples. So you shouldn't think that this is an unrepresentative sample unless you've got some special reason for thinking that, right? Yeah, Your yeah. The fault assumption is it's probably like most of the samples. 
that makes sense. That seems like a good thing. Right. So good like that sort of pushes the burden onto the skeptic to say why you're suspicious of this sample. Do you want to say anything more about the problem of induction? The other thing that I want to say is, well, there's this inference of the best explanation approach. Where, you know, basically people say, okay, so if you see this long regularity, then you want some kind of explanation of it. Because it's super unlikely that there's a pretty specific regularity that just occurs over and over again for no reason. So there's probably an explanation. And so like you look for the best explanation, right? The best explanation is often something about the laws of nature, right? Like you come up with laws of nature that would predict that regularity. Okay. But then from the explanation, you can infer further predictions, right? So like you observe all of this um, gravitational behavior, right? Which is like, you know, things fall to the ground when you drop them and like the moon is orbiting around the earth and like the plants are orbiting around the sun. This is all like gravitational behavior, so to speak. Okay, all that can be explained by there being a law of nature called the law of gravity, right? But okay, so like, you know, we have reason for believing that there is such a law of nature. Otherwise, there's, there's no explanation for why all that stuff happened. And if there was no explanation, it's highly unlikely that that regularity would have continued for so long, right? And so uniformly, okay. But then, so since there's probably a law of nature, that means that, well, in the future, bodies will continue to behave gravitationally because it's a law of nature. So what is direct versus indirect realism? And what's the real distinction between these things here, rather than the mistaken distinctions that people tend to draw when they're thinking about direct versus indirect realism? And that oh, I yeah. drew, I think, while reading this chapter. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so indirect realism. So this is about the philosophy of perception. It's about what happens when you perceive objects and um, how you know about the objects that you're perceiving, okay? So the indirect realist view is, well, you're not directly aware of anything in the physical world. You're actually only directly aware of something that is dependent on your own mind, All right? So the indirect realist will say, like, you're aware of a, you're aware of sensations or perceptions or ideas in the mind, as um, Barclay called them, right? Or, and, and David Hume called them. Okay, and then on their view, like, well, those things are caused by the indirect realist view, the things in your mind are caused by physical objects. Okay, and then also their view about how you know about the physical world is, well, you have foundational knowledge about your mental states, like your sensory experiences, and then you infer stuff about the physical world, because, you know, beliefs about the physical world provide the best explanation for your, why you're having these sensory experiences or something like that. Okay, so like, you know, you see, you see a book in front of you and you're like, okay, you're having the sensory experience, this book-like sensory experience, and what's the best explanation for it? It's that there's a book causing my sensory experience. And then the direct realist view is, no, you're directly aware of the book. And what I mean by that is you're aware of the book and you're not aware of something else. You're not aware of the book um, on the basis of awareness of something other than the book, right? And by the book, I mean the actual physical object, not a mental state. <laughs> And also, as an epistemological view, you have foundational justification for beliefs about the physical world, like that there's a dark colored rectangular object in the physical world. So what is direct realism not saying? Because honestly, I mean, I, I don't know what I'm convinced of. I don't think I came into this chapter with like strong epistemological views, but indirect realism seemed more intuitive to me. But, you know, here I am ready to defer yes. to you. Why is indirect realism crazy? I mean, you know, like one thing is the indirect realists do have a harder time dealing with skepticism, but, you know, maybe you're not too worried about that. Maybe they can deal with it anyway. Um, I mean, but, you know, this is like traditionally a starting point for skeptical arguments, right? Where you say like, 
okay, you know, you're only directly aware of your own mind. So, you know, tell me about the inference, how, how you get from, I have such and such mental states to there are physical states. Okay. Okay. What else is wrong with indirect realism? <laughs> like, let's say that we think that we have some answer to the skeptic anyway. Like, here's one thing that I, I wonder about. Okay. So I'm looking, I'm looking at a book and supposedly I'm aware of a mental state, not the actual physical book. And this mental state, this like book-like thing, does it have a location? Well, okay, I'm aware of something that has a shape and a color. Now, I think that physical objects can have shapes and colors, but I think in order to have in order to have a shape and a color, you have to be in space. To have a shape, you have to have, so a shape is a spatial property. So a thing has to be in space. Okay, so if it's really a mental state that I'm aware of, where is the mental state located? And then I just think that like there's no good answer to that. Is the straightforward answer not that the mental state is located in your brain? Yeah. So then, you know, this implies that like there's little tiny book shaped things in my head when I look at a book. Right. And like that just sounds like super naive and silly. If a brain scientist opens up my head, they're not going to see any little book shaped thing when I'm looking at the book. Well, by analogy, like, you know, I'm looking at a picture of you right now, and I don't think there's little Mike humor shaped ones and zeros in the computer there there there's something else that would be unrecognizable if i like looked into the hard drive of the computer as as a picture of you on my screen but then it's you yeah. know it's it's interpreted in some way by i don't know if that if that's a good analogy but i i think yeah. probably intuitively that's how i'm thinking of it there there is something physically in my brain that is representing these things i don't think it's like shaped like a book or a cup or something like that oh. it's not like a tiny version of a book but it's it's something that then I interpret in a certain way. Well, but so, you know, the question is like, what, what are you aware of? Right. So what's the object of awareness? Uh, and like, so when I look at this, I'm, I'm aware of a rectangular object. I'm not aware of any shapeless, colorless object. So if there are some shapeless, colorless, colorless objects that are going on or whatever, or processes or something. Well, I know that they're not the object of awareness because I'm only aware of the rectangular black thing. So this is right? why I think that maybe there's just isn't the disagreement that I think there is, because that also sounds like the way I'm interpreting this, that maybe these weird formless chemical electrical signals in my brain are the cause of my awareness of a book. Is that what direct realism is saying? Oh, yeah. So the direct realist is not saying there are no brain processes going on. Right? They're not saying there are no causal processes in between the physical object and your awareness of it, right? But they are saying that there's no other object of awareness. There, so there's the physical object that's an object of awareness, and you're not aware of it by being aware of something else. Okay, so you're in particular, you're not aware of your brain states, right, or brain processes or whatever, and you're not aware of like, whatever, the light striking your retina or something like that. But do indirect realists say that you are aware of those things? Because that sounds crazy, well, too. No, they say you're aware of a mental thing, right? Like a mental image or something like that, or otherwise known as a sense datum. So is this just like an intermediate, like you have you have all of this science going on with sensory inputs on your fingertips and light rays hitting your retina and stuff, and then this causes a mental image, and that's what you're aware of, and then that gets interpreted to mean there's an object out there. And you're just doing away with the mental image part. Yeah. So, and by the way, like I'm also not saying, and most directory lists are not saying that there's no mental state. Okay. So there is a mental state. There's like a perceptual experience, which is the means by which you're aware of the external object. But it's not that you're aware of the external object by being aware of the mental state. 
It's that you're aware of the external object by having the mental state because the mental state is a state of awareness of the object. Okay, so you know what else? What else is bad about indirect realism? Right. So uh, honestly, I'm still having a hard time really distinguishing between what these two views are, what the real material difference is between them. I feel like I've got a grasp on it, and then it seems more and more like they're saying the same things in slightly different ways. But that's not quite uh, right, is it? You know, it's supposed to be something about like, are you aware of a mental image of a book, or are you aware of a book? Well, that's not exactly fair because they would say, no, you are aware of a book. It's just that you're aware of the book indirectly by being aware of the mental image of the book. Okay, and then I would say, no, no, I'm aware of the book. I'm not aware of the book by being aware of a mental image of a book. Does any of this disagreement depend on like the actual empirical science of how perception works in your view? Well, I think it doesn't depend upon empirical matters that are not available to ordinary people. (laughs) It doesn't depend on like the state of the art of neurology and physics and the way we understand light waves or anything like that. Yeah, I don't think brain science is going to tell us anything about this, right? Because it's a philosophical, not a scientific dispute. So uh, like, it's not a dispute about um, empirical predictions. It's a dispute about what counts as awareness or something like that. <laughs> but um, but it does depend on sort of introspection. I, I claim that by introspective observation, you notice that the first thing you're aware of is the physical world. You're not, you don't start out being aware of your mind. You're aware of the physical world and then like later, you can develop awareness of your own mind. And really like the way that I know I have perceptual experiences more is more like I, I hypothesize that there are things called perceptual experiences to explain why I'm aware of the physical world. But I started out just being aware of the physical world. Um, and, you know, like if, if you think that you start out being aware of something mental, mental images or something like that, then there is a question as to how you get to beliefs about the physical world. Right, you have to try to construct some inference that starts from premises about mental images and gets to conclusions about the physical world. And it just turns out to be pretty hard to construct that inference. Right. And and like, you know, it takes a sophisticated philosopher to figure it out. But like the argument that the sophisticated philosopher comes up with is not going to be plausibly ascribed to like children who perceive (laughs) the physical world. And you know, children and animals, like they're aware of physical objects in their environment, and they can't understand the philosopher's argument for why you should believe in physical objects. So it seems like their knowledge is not dependent upon some kind of inference. And in the indirect realist view, there is some requirement that the perceiver is actually making this inference, not just that it's like somehow happening automatically. They would probably say, oh, it's an unconscious inference or something like this, right? You know, something but, that could happen in an animal, for instance. Yeah, right. But, you know, am I even unconsciously inferring it? I don't know what would make it the case that I'm having this unconscious inference rather than that I'm not making an inference. I mean, uh, you know, you might think like, okay, like, so I propose some tests for whether I'm making the unconscious inference. Like um, if I acquired evidence against the premises of the inference or against the reliability of the inference, would I stop believing the conclusion? And so if the answer is yes, then that suggests that it did make an unconscious inference. So like if you unconsciously infer from A to B, then if you acquire evidence that not A, then you're going to stop believing B. And in this case, I think um, it wouldn't be the case, right? Well, I guess per impossibile, if I acquired evidence that I wasn't really having the mental state, or, or maybe if I acquired evidence that mental images weren't really correlated with external objects, would I stop believing in external objects? I mean, uh, if your visual perception was like radically disjointed from your tactile sensations, maybe. Right. Yeah. 
which I guess is what happens when we watch movies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the people who first saw movies were very afraid that they were about to get run over by a train. Yeah. Let's see. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. So, like, when you watch the movie, you don't actually believe that those things are happening. Right. Although you have something that's sort of like a quasi belief, right? You have like, yeah, you experience an appearance that that stuff is happening, but you don't believe that it's happening. And that probably has a lot to do with the actual sense data that you've accumulated that, you know, if you get a convincing special effect or something like that, it might fool you. But if you have enough experience with it, you realize, no, no, it's just a screen. It's just a light projection or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Like, yeah, a lot of the things that you see in movies, you don't know what's actually happening. <laughs> Anyway, uh, what I wanted to say was, well, if I somehow came to believe that I don't really have visual images, I don't have mental images of things, would I then not believe in the physical objects? I wanted to say, no, I would still believe in the physical objects. So direct so that, realism is the way to go. So that shows that my belief in physical objects isn't justified on the basis of my belief in mental images. That's what I wanted to say. What it, this is both a moral philosophy and an epistemology question. So what is the is ought problem or is there a better way to formulate it than that? This is another David Hume question too. Is he the first person also to, to raise this issue? He's the first person that I know of. Yeah, probably. So what is it? And do you think it's a genuine puzzle or problem in philosophy? Yeah, Hume noticed, I guess, that you can't infer evaluative conclusions from descriptive premises. Right? Or as it's sometimes said, you can't infer an ought statement from a bunch of is statements. Like you can't figure out what ought to be the case purely on the basis of statements about what is the case. Right now, sometimes you think that you can do that. Like, uh, okay, like I uh, I observe some stuff about um, political systems. Like I observe that in the communist countries, a lot of people were killed, and then like the economy went down. And, like everybody was living in poverty. Also, like they didn't have much freedom. Like people were, would be thrown in jail and stuff. Like, and then. It looks like I can conclude, so we should not adopt communism. So I had a bunch of descriptive premises. I had a, a, an evaluative conclusion. Does that show that Hume was wrong? No. Like, okay, so the standard thing you're supposed to think is, well, but that inference presupposed some evaluative premises, which I didn't explicitly state. So I had to presuppose stuff like um, death is bad. It's bad for people to be killed. Poverty is bad. Freedom is good. If you presuppose those things then you can get an evaluative conclusion. But you had to put the evaluative premises in in order to get an evaluative conclusion. Okay, so you get this general claim, sometimes said that you can't get any evaluative conclusions without having evaluative premises. It seems to me that the, the objection that always comes to my mind is that it seems to me that evaluative or ought statements are actually just a subset of his statements. They're not something that are actually distinct from it. So talking about deriving one from the other is like saying you can't derive a uh, biology statement from a science statement or something like right. that like does that right, is there okay. any plausibility to that okay yeah so well the terminology of descriptive versus evaluative is potentially misleading uh, i think it came up because some of the people who drew that distinction or like some earlier whatever earlier um 20th century analytic philosophers actually thought that statements about values are not describing anything but that's kind of weird because like why why aren't they just like describing value right when i say when i say life yeah, is that, good that's my say, well i'm just yeah i'm just describing the goodness of life so why is that descriptive okay but anyway the way that we use the terminology now is just by stipulation by descriptive statement i mean one that isn't evaluative yeah it's more like you can't derive biological statements from non-biological statements right? and maybe i don't know if that's true or not but 
Is that an important or interesting problem that we can't derive biological statements from non-biological yeah. statements? Uh, I don't know if it's true, but it, say no. it was true. Yeah. So what's why is there a puzzle about um, a value to statements? So basically, as I see it, um, there's an epistemological problem, I guess. I don't know, epistemological issue about how we know a value to truths. Like, well, how, how do you know that it's wrong to torture babies? Okay, well, maybe you could derive it from some other value statements, like, I don't know, you know, torture causes pain, pain is bad. Okay, you derive it from the badness of pain. Okay, all right, but go to the first value statement, like pain is bad. <laughs> maybe that's the first value statement that you don't have another reason for. What's the justification of that? Okay, and then people think, well, um, so it can't be derived from a descriptive statement. Um, it also can't be directly observed because like moral value doesn't look like anything. Like, so like goodness, right, it doesn't have a color or shape or whatever. So it can't be observed by the five senses. And then like, if you're an empiricist, like, you know, a bunch of people in the 20th century were, uh, I guess some people still are, right? If you're an empiricist, you're like, wow, so there's no way of knowing about value. You can't observe it and you can't infer it from non-value statements. So it just looks like there's no way of knowing about it. And it looks like the only way... The only answer is you could say we know it by intuition, you know, but oh, who wants that? Who wants to say that? The author of Ethical Intuitionism wants to say that. Yeah, so I, I would say that. But anyway, a bunch of people don't like, you know, like intuition. So it's like there isn't a good story about how we know about facts about value. In your view, the story is you know, on some level no different than how we know facts about anything else, right? Yeah, in, in a sense, right? Like um, the way we know about anything is things appear a certain way to us. And if you have no reason for doubting the appearances, then it's rational to assume that things are the way they appear, right? And um, usually they are the way they appear. So then you get a justified true belief. And then, and like, usually there aren't any defeaters. So then you, you have knowledge. So for evaluative statements, you have a lot of much more basic level appearances about certain things like pain or whatever being bad. I'm, I'm not trying to ascribe utilitarianism to you, but a, a lot yeah. of very, very basic kind of evaluative beliefs that eventually you might think about in the way you would think about physical laws and see how they cohere together. And like, if there are any general principles that can be derived from all of these various evaluative impressions and appearances that you've developed over your life. And that's how you build something like a system of moral philosophy. Is that close to your view? Yeah, that's right. You know, to be clear. Okay. So these intuitions are initial intellectual appearances, right? Meaning, so you think about something intellectually, as opposed to like looking at it with your eyes, you think intellectually, and then sometimes a thing that you're thinking about just seems true, or it just seems a certain way. So, okay, so you imagine somebody who's like torturing babies for fun. And when you think about that, it just seems wrong. Okay. And, um, if you have one of these experiences of something just seeming correct or seem, seeming right or seeming wrong or whatever, and it's not the result of an inference, like you didn't go through an argument, then we call that an intuition, right? Uh, okay, but now I'm not saying that all ethics is intuitive. I'm saying there are some starting points that are intuitions like that. And like you think about pain, is it, you know, about pain and suffering, are they good or bad? Seems to me like they're bad. So like you have those starting points and then, you know, you can reason from there and you try to construct a coherent ethical system that's compatible with these intuitions. And this is different from 
I don't know, what's the alternative trying to reason about grand facts about human nature and then reason in a top down way from grand abstract principles that you reason from on high and then deduce (laughs) out all of the moral laws from there? Yeah, I mean, as far as I understand, there is not an alternative to relying on intuitions, right? I mean, other than being a skeptic. Or there's no like alternative that anyone would want. Okay. So anyway, like, well, there's the alternative of trying to infer evaluative claims from descriptive claims, but that just doesn't work. I don't know. There's the alternative of believing random things, randomly chosen things. And okay, there are a bunch of philosophers who claim that they don't rely on intuitions. And they, and some of these people do moral philosophy anyway, right? or like they pretend that they're criticizing intuitions, but what they're actually doing is they just don't like other people's intuitions. Right. And so like, there's no other way that you have a value to beliefs, right? Given that you're relying on intuitions, there is the alternative of like starting from abstract theoretical intuitions or starting from more concrete intuitions about particular cases, right? So like there are some people who think, yeah, we should start from sweeping generalizations that seem plausible to us. Like, you know, you should always, always do the action that produces the most good. I'll just start from there, <laughs> like, cause, cause that kind of seems right to me. Right. And then, you know, there's the other, the alternative approach is no, um, start by considering a concrete scenario. And then you have an intuitive reaction to that scenario. Like I imagine a case in which, um, there's a doctor who kills a healthy patient in order to take out his organs and transplant them to five other people who need organ transplants. All right. And so he saves five lives because he does all these organ transplants but he killed a healthy patient. Okay. So that's a relatively concrete scenario. And like most people will have an intuitive reaction to that, which almost everyone's reaction is that it seems very wrong. And in your view, if someone got to conclusions that seem wrong to you using this method, a way of arguing against that would not be to appeal to some grand abstract principle, but to try to appeal to more concrete cases and reason up from there and show that their conclusion was wrong. Yeah, so basically, I think best way of forming beliefs usually involves starting from concrete particular cases. When we start from abstract generalizations, we almost always go wrong. Now, I'm not saying that as a starting point. I didn't just like intuit that you shouldn't start from abstract generalizations, which would be somewhat self-defeating. What happened was that I observed a lot of cases. I observed a lot of cases in which philosophers start from sweeping generalizations, and it almost always goes haywire, right? And also the philosophers who do this don't agree with each other right? They wind up with radically different systems. So they contradict each other. And they also just like contradict common sense left and right. So you give a, you give a really beautiful example at some point in the book about Euclid's elements being this great classic case of pure top down abstract, certain knowledge worked out into a beautiful system, as opposed to all this messy reasoning from empirical cases. But what's the punchline of that story? Yeah. 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 So like Euclid's elements is is a it's an inspiration for rationalists through the ages, right? And he starts from these axioms and definitions, which are like simple, and there's a small number of them. Then he deduces like whatever, however many theorems, over a hundred theorems from this is this great intellectual system. Right? This is the work of geometry and and other kinds yeah. of math, or just geometry? Yeah, just geometry, I guess. Is there some arithmetic in it? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> you know, st- students have learned geometry based on Euclid's elements for centuries. But actually, the way that we acquired that knowledge is not the way that it's represented in the book. (laughs) 
Like what happened was not actually that Euclid thought of these simple axioms and then he just started deducing things. What happened was geometry began literally thousands of years earlier than Euclid in ancient Egypt. And it started with people just like coming up with ad hoc formulas for calculating areas of different shapes. Some of them appear to be empirical and appear to be approximations. Like they had a way of calculating the the area of a circle or something using like eight ninths of the diameter squared or something. I'm not, <laughs> I've forgotten exactly what it is, but it's a formula that gets you close to the area, but it's not, it's not exactly correct. Right. And that's part of how we know that it was kind of in, empirically based and not systematic. Right. So anyway, people came up with all of these. They just like over thousands of years, they like accumulated some knowledge of geometry or some of it was not exactly knowledge <laughs> but anyway whatever they accumulated some formulas and stuff and then euclid came along and, he and tried these to aren't systematize it. and these aren't philosophers or scientists generally these are like construction workers and architects and people building pots yeah. and wanting to make sure they get the size of their pottery right coming yeah. up with tinkerers estimate equations yeah mostly i i believe they were doing practical things so there'd be people who were like trying to figure out how much land somebody owns. So they needed to have like formulas for calculating area and stuff like that. So, you know, after they'd accumulated all these miscellaneous little formulas and things, then Euclid comes along and systematizes them. And for, for perspective, the time between the beginning of geometry in ancient Egypt and Euclid is longer than the time between Euclid and us. Yeah, geez. Do you have any recommendations? First of all, I'll take the words out of your mouth. I already mentioned the book that we discussed on episode eight, but Knowledge, Reality, and Value is a good supplement to this book. So recommend that and check out that episode. There's some overlapping material in this book, but there's a, a lot more on epistemology than appears in that book. That's a, a, a general introduction to philosophy, and this is specifically about epistemology. But your work aside, I wonder if you have any good epistemology recommendations. I'll ask for one that's like older, say pre-1800, and yeah, yeah. one more contemporary work that you think would complement this one well. Well, uh, it's hard to pick one, like, because like I think every philosophy student has to read Descartes' Meditations, and uh, and I think also every philosophy student has to read David Hume's Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding, or the treatise because they're kind of redundant. Yeah, and then you know, like more recently, I really like um, Bertrand Russell. You know, like his Problems of Philosophy. Like that's a pretty good introduction, although it's short. It doesn't cover as much as you would want from an introduction to philosophy, but, and it's like, it's heavy on epistemology. Okay, good. I'll include those. Are you working on any upcoming projects right now? You know, I'm, I'm writing more about, I'm going to do more about politics. <laughs> I'm going to write some stuff about, you know, myths of progressivism. Are you going to continue? I don't know if this was de deliberate, but are you going to uh, expand knowledge, reality, and value into a more detailed trilogy of intro books? So, yeah, so after that, I have understanding knowledge, and then I was thinking I could have understanding reality and then understanding value. Uh, it's a little harder, though, because, like, I, I mean, I've been an epistemologist for a long time, and I know a lot about epistemology, so, like, so I could write a, a long book about it. But if I was going to do the understanding reality, which would be about metaphysics, I have to do a, a bunch more research, so it would, it would take time. I imagine you could do a, an ethics and a political philosophy book pretty well. Yeah, that's right. And, and you have another debate volume coming up, too, right? Right. There's a, I have a debate about skepticism from Rutledge coming out. I don't know if it'll be this year or early next year. And, you know, you, you, it throughout this book and knowledge, reality and value, you write about skepticism a lot. And 
seems like mostly the skeptical arguments and the skeptical philosophers are not true believers or people making the arguments don't really believe them. Um, are in this debate volume, are you debating a, a, a real honest to goodness skeptic? Um, so I would say not exactly. Right. It's Brian Francis who has written about skepticism, sort of like the form of skepticism that I think he actually believes in is not like the extreme forms of skepticism that epistemologists usually talk about. Okay. So like he's a, he's a skeptic about controversial issues. Like he thinks if you have a highly controversial issue or yeah, if you have an issue that's controversial among experts, then you don't know the answer to it, which I think is like totally plausible actually. Um, and now, you know, he, he does undertake to in the, in the debate volume, he does kind of undertake to defend skepticism about the external world, but he really doesn't seem like he's convinced of it. seems like he's doing it because that's what he's supposed to do for the debate. Well, I'm looking forward to that. And where can people find you if they want to keep up with you? So I have a great blog called Fake News that's spelled F-A-K-E-N-O-U-S dot substack dot com. And uh, yeah, and now I have a website, which is at owl232.net. Awesome. I'll link to those and I'll link to your author page on Amazon as well and the book recommendations and the book we discussed today. So my guest today has been Mike Humer and his book once again is Understanding Knowledge. Awesome intro to epistemology textbook. Mike, thank you so much for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.